There's a great scene in the movie The Lion King that's been rolling through my head all week long. Any fans of The Lion King here this morning? Yeah, love it. It's a great kids movie. Uh, let me just set it up a little bit. Uh, it's about a, a, a young lion cub who's born to be the next king of the Pride Lands. His father is Mufasa. His name is Simba. And in a tragic event, his father dies and his evil uncle Scar makes him think that it's his fault that his father died. And so he, Simba runs away from the Pride Lands and he finds two new friends. Simone and Pumbaa, and he spends uh, his growing up years living by their motto for life, which is Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. It's kind of a carefree existence where he swims around in this oasis paradise, and he eats bugs, and pretty much throws off any and all responsibilities. Meanwhile, his evil uncle Scar has become king of the Pride Lands and decimated the place, and the hyenas are all over, and that's that's what's happening. And Simba is essentially not living up to who he's been called to be. And so his father, Mufasa, appears to him in a vision. And here's the dialogue. Mufasa says, Simba, you have forgotten me. Simba, no, how could I? Mufasa, you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. Simba says, how can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. And his father says this, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. And this becomes the turning point in the movie, the turning point in Simba's life where he remembers who he is and he goes back to the pride lands and restores order and overthrows the evil king. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. Now, if you know the good news of the gospel, you hear those words and and all of a sudden sometimes there's tears in your eyes because you realize that even though this is a children's movie with, with animation, that it actually illustrates one of the most profound realities of the gospel. That as Christians, if we would simply remember and know who we are in Jesus Christ and live out of that identity, it would change everything. It would be the place where where we we turn our back on the the shame and the the sadness that used to define our life, and we would live up to who we are, so to speak. Now, as important as it is for us as individual Christians to know who we are in Christ, it's, it's it's important as well for the church to remember who she is. And Peter, as he writes to this church scattered throughout the Roman Empire, made up of Jews and Gentiles, reminds them in in 1 Peter chapter 2 of who they are, that they might live out of this new identity. So would you turn there with me? 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, that's Jesus or Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament about the church because in it you have the collision of so many images and metaphors and types from the Old Testament crashing in in the here and now and Peter said those things were about you and you actually are the fulfillment of them. Now to understand what Peter is saying here when he says you are the temple, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, you need to be somewhat familiar with the Old Testament and the biblical story as it is unfolded. And and so as we've been in this thread series, we've kind of been looking at the overarching story of God that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Every thread kind of ties to him, and he's the point of it. But this has been happening over, over the course of human history, and that the Bible is not primarily a spiritual encyclopedia, but an unfolding story of God's redemption and salvation. And so I just want to hit the rewind button and and maybe use this as a day to to kind of recap the story, but looking at specific parts so that as we do that, and as we read Old Testament passages, there will be light bulbs going off in your mind of, oh, that's happening here. That's what this is about, okay? So let's start at the beginning, a very good place to start, okay? Uh, Creation. God created the world and everything in it out of the overflow of who he is. He made us, humanity, mankind, male and female, as relational beings because that is what he is like as a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, a a unity and a diversity. And so he makes us in his image. He makes mankind to, to rule over the earth and show the rest of creation what he is like. So God's original plan to fill the earth with his glory was to fill it with his image bearers fill it with his glory reflectors that we would show the rest of creation what God is like. Now, that didn't last very long. In fact, just in in, in chapter 3 of the Bible, Adam and Eve disobey God. They reject God's rule and reign over their life. They determine that they would be better kings and queens than him, determining good and evil for themselves. And when that happened, everything about this world changed. So when we go outside and we look around and and we see evil and we see conflict and war and we realize this world is not the way that it should be, everything ties back to that because from that point forward, the earth was marred with the curse of, of sin and the curse of humanity. We call it the fall. So in the first three chapters, we have creation and our mandate and then we have fall. Now God, in this moment, would have been absolutely within his right to simply wipe us out and start over, wouldn't he? I mean, he created us, he made us, he is sovereign, he's the, he's the one. Or, at the very least, he could have simply let us sleep in the bed that we had made to stay in this fallen state, so to speak, but he didn't. Because he is merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love. Out of his loving heart, he promises in that moment to one day redeem and restore and renew all things, including us. And so in chapter 3, he makes this incredible promise that there will be a deliverer that will come that will renew and restore all things. And we get a glimpse in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 about how God is going to do that. As God calls out a man by the name of Abram and gives him a new name, Abraham, and makes a promise to him. He says he's going to bless Abraham and be his God and his descendants. But then as the book of Genesis unfolds, we see that actually Abraham's family ends the book of Genesis not in the land that God had promised, but rather down in Egypt. And it's in Egypt that they are enslaved for 400 years. But God raises up another descendant of Abraham, a guy by the name of Moses, to rescue his people from the hand of Pharaoh and to call them out into the new land, the promised land that God is going to give them. And before they get to the promised land, God brings them to Mount Sinai and he meets with them and he establishes his covenant with the people of God through Moses. In Exodus chapter 19, this is God's calling to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I've got a new pulpit here. I'm I'm breaking it in and uh, dropping water bottles along the way. So he gives them his law, his commandments, and he tells them, as you keep my commandments and laws, you will be my treasured possession among all of the peoples of the earth, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that language sound familiar at all? Simply put, what God is telling them here is that you will show the watching world what I am like by reflecting my holy character to them. You will be set apart and different, distinct from all of the other nations of the earth, and you will be a kingdom of priests, or you will serve in a mediating role between the nations and me, a holy God, by revealing to them what I'm like, as you live out my rule and reign by obeying my commandments. Now, we know the rest of the story. They didn't do so well at that, did they? But as they're about to enter the promised land, God reiterates some of these ideas about them through Moses right on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. That's their calling. That's who they are. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, why did God choose them? Verse 7 answers it. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But even as they were receiving the law, even as they're wandering in the wilderness, they are not obeying what God has called them to be. And so God actually, within his law, established an entire elaborate system for how they as a sinful people were to live in the presence of a holy and perfect and morally perfect God. He gave them the priesthood and the tabernacle or the temple and the sacrificial system that when they sinned, 
God created this system for them to make atonement for their sin. They would go to the temple or the tabernacle, the place where God's visible glory dwelled on earth, and they would offer a, a, uh, a sacrifice through a priest who would mediate that sacrifice between them uh, and, and a holy God. So they couldn't come to God on their own terms, but they could draw somewhat close to the presence of God. And the priest would offer the sacrifice, shedding its blood, and, and the shedding, through the shedding of blood, their, their sins were forgiven. The person then offering sacrifice on their behalf was the priest, serving as a mediator, as it were, between God and sinful humanity. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, over and over and over again they fail at this. Rather than serving as a beacon of light to the nations, they actually become like all the other nations. Rather than being distinct and holy, they look just like everybody else, worshiping false gods, breaking God's law, and committing what God calls spiritual adultery on them. So God then raises up prophets throughout their history to call them out for their sin and to call them back to covenant faithfulness that they might be a light to the nations. One of the prophets that God called out was a man by the name of Hosea. And Hosea the prophet was commanded to take a wife named Gomer who he knew would be unfaithful to him like the people of God had been to Yahweh. And so Hosea actually lives out as kind of a living parable, so to speak, what the people of God were doing to their God in committing spiritual adultery. His wife would cheat on him and have children in his home that were not his. And so he gave them a series of prophetic names that you wouldn't want to name any of your children. Child number two was called no mercy because God was going to show no mercy to them. Child number three was called not my people. Okay? Now, whew, don't give your kid that name. Not my kid. Okay? That's not a good name. That's not a legacy to live into. But God, even in the midst of calling them out, says this, makes this promise to them through Hosea the prophet. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And she should... She shall say, you are my God. Additionally, in Isaiah chapter 43, God makes a promise to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now, I hope you're connecting the dots. I hope you're seeing that the language of the Bible actually goes through and that Peter actually takes all of these incredible promises and applies them not to the Jewish people, but now to the church. The people, Jews and Gentiles, who put their faith and trust in the cornerstone, Jesus, the one in whom everything is being built upon. And so in verses 4 to 8 of First Peter 2, he says that you, as a people, are the new temple of God. His dwelling place on the earth is no longer a place of brick and stone, but rather a people gathered. And then in verse 9, he goes on rapid fire and says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, sound familiar? Now you have received mercy. And so church, I want to invite you to ponder five realities of who you now are together as the people of God. The first metaphor is you are now the new temple of God. The temple is no longer a place of brick and stone and mortar where, where God's glory and presence dwells that you have to take a pilgrimage to and you are separated from going to the nearest place with God. 
The foundation and cornerstone of this new temple is Jesus, who's rejected by some, but chosen by others, and he becomes the chief cornerstone on which the new people of God, the temple, is built. And the place now where the very presence of God dwells on earth is when God's people gather together. Those indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, when they gather together, something unique happens, and people are in the presence of God Almighty. It's manifest in a special way when we gather together. That's amazing, isn't it? It means that if people want to have an encounter with the living God of the universe who spoke things into being, they should go and gather with his people and they'll get a flavor and a taste of what he's like. They will sense his presence in some way. Now, a stone simply sitting in a field is nothing. It's just a stone. But when a stone begins to be joined together with other stones, it turns into a building, a temple, something else. In the same way, you are the temple of God, but you're not by yourself. You do have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and yet what Peter is saying is to the church corporately, y'all, or y'all, right, for my southern friends, y'all are the temple of God. So that when we gather together, something special happens. Something unique happens. The tangible presence of God should be felt. And so because we are the new temple of God, we are no longer restricted to encountering God in a chosen place, but rather anywhere that Christians gather. If you look at the history of Christianity, the center point of Christianity where more Christians gather has actually changed and kind of gone all over the world. It began in the Holy Land and in the Middle East, and shortly after that it went north into Syria and then into southern Europe and northern Africa, and it was there for a long time, and then it shifted to northern Europe, and then the center of Christianity for a while shifted over to the northern hem- or to, the, to North America and the Western Hemisphere. But now if you were to go and find Christians gathered, there are more Christians in the, in the global south and, and, and in Asia than in anywhere else in the world. And so we see that Christianity is remarkably adaptable because it's not tied to a specific place. None of the other religions have actually had that happen. Like if you go and, and look at the highest concentration of Islam, it's primarily still in the Middle East. Of Hinduism, it's primarily still in, in India. Of Buddhism, it's still in Southeast Asia. But Christianity is different because the presence of God goes with the people of God when they gather. Second, church We are a chosen race. Now, if you want to say something fairly politically charged, start talking about race in the church. And yet Peter picks up this metaphor, picks up this theme, and he's speaking to the church, men and women of different races and ethnicities, and he says, you are a chosen race. Do you see how radical that this is? God's chosen race or people, the the Jews, are no longer it specifically, but now it is all of those who are in Christ Jews and Gentiles alike. What marks us now as a race is Jesus, the cornerstone, and what we believe about him. Do you see, guys, that this kills once and for all any kind of racism that might linger in our hearts? God in Christ makes us family, makes a new race, a new humanity, and because we, as the church, are a chosen race, Christianity now provides the greatest hope in the world to eradicate racism. It's our greatest hope. Because God takes people who have been hostile to one another and he deals with the hostility that exists in Christ and takes it to the grave. 
And because he's done that and the hostility between you and other peoples has been fully and completely dealt with, we're now family. We're a new thing, a new race, a new family. Christianity provides the greatest hope in the gospel for the eradication of racism. Third, church, you are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are kingly priests. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, these two leadership roles didn't overlap. There were the kings who ruled and reigned over God's people, and there were the priests who served as mediators in the temple, and they helped people draw near to God. And in fact, when kings tried to take on a priestly role like Saul did when he offered sacrifices, God's judgment fell upon him. But now here, Peter picks up on these ideas, these themes, these metaphors, and he calls the church a royal or kingly priesthood. A people who are part of God's rule and reign, his kingdom, but also a people who serve as mediators to the surrounding people, interceding or mediating on behalf of God. So to make this more plain, the way that people know what God is like is by looking at God's people. There is something about Israel's failure here that brought the judgment of God because they did not reflect what God was actually like to the surrounding nations. And the primary way in which mission happened in the Old Testament was come and see what God is like. Come and see how he makes a difference among his people. And what what they were brought to see didn't resemble or look like God at all. Now, in the New Testament, we are explicitly sent out to go and tell the good news of the gospel, but we are also inviting people to come and see the difference he makes, not just in an individual, but in a community of people, how it changes us and shapes us and causes us to relate to one another differently in such a way where God's power and his presence is clearly seen. This is our calling, church. Because we are a royal priesthood, the way that the people in the world encounter the rule and the reign of God is through us, our lives together, and our invitation for them to come and see. Number four, church, you are a holy nation. To be holy is to be set apart, reflecting the character and the nature of our holy God. We reflect him to the world, but we are also a new nation. This means that our primary identity and loyalty and allegiance belongs to Jesus, not our current country of citizenship. We are his people before we are Americans, or Israelis, or Palestinians, or Egyptians, or Ukrainians, or Russians, or Chinese, or French, whatever ethnicity, whatever nation we might attach to Christian, it is secondary to the fact that we are Christ's. We are Jesus' people first and foremost, which, which means then that this familial connection that we feel toward believers in China and believers in Palestine and believers in North Africa and believers in Russia and believers all over the world actually supersedes our national identity. Because Jesus is our primary allegiance. We are a holy nation. Meaning you can be involved in your nation and we should. It just doesn't have your heart the way Jesus does. It doesn't have your hope the way that Jesus does. Fifth, we are a people for God's own possession. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. The precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ God chose us like Israel, not because we are awesome and amazing and breathtaking, but because he is a good and he is a gracious king. 
He's kind and loving toward us. This changes how you view yourself and how you view everyone else. Grace explodes your identity and it changes how you view everybody else. Because we have been chosen in Christ to be God's people, then it doesn't matter if we're rejected by other people, does it? It humbles us because our identity is not built on what we achieve or what we produce or what we have. It's built on what's, what has been done for us. And now as we receive the welcome into God's family and all of the things that Jesus has achieved become ours in him, it transforms how we view everybody else. And we recognize, oh my goodness, I'm not better. I'm not Jesus's because I'm smarter than you. I'm not Jesus, Jesus's because I'm more righteous than another. I am his because he chose me. And he opened my eyes to see. And he humbled me and he showed me my sin and yet invited me to come and receive his mercy. And that's open to anyone who would come. Anyone who would see and recognize Jesus as their savior and believe in his name. Now a question that pops into my head as I think about this identity that's been given to us is why did he do it? Why did God choose us? What is his goal in this? And the end of verse 9 actually tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a worship component to this and there's a mission component to this that we might declare and, and proclaim his excellencies and worship him ourselves as we stand in awe of his grace and his mercy and his majesty. God exists for his own glory and he displays it for our joy that as we see how valuable and worthwhile he is, we proclaim that worth to, to him. We bring glory and honor to him and we proclaim that worth to others that they might come and recognize it too. There's a worship element and a, a mission element to God, God's people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice the metaphor there. You used to be stumbling around in darkness, but someone flipped on the light switch or the sun came up and now you can see. And so you proclaim him to others sitting in darkness that they might see as well. Now, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we actually live out of this new identity? And actually what he says is kind of shocking, especially if you have in mind, okay, we're going to set up a new Christian nation. Because in verse 11 and 12, he actually gives a very different paradigm for us on how we're to live in this world. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have to remember who we are, but we also have to remember where our home is. Do you see that? This is not our home. I'll show you why. We are called here exiles and sojourners. An exile is one who's living in a land that's not their home, and they're not there by their choice. They're just there. A sojourner is one who is traveling through a land that is not their home. They are on a journey, but they are trying to go home. And the implication in using these two titles is clear. This world is not our home. Somewhere else is. 
And just as we are to keep in mind who we are as God's people, we must keep in mind where our real home actually is, meaning we can't treat this place as if it's our home. It's never going to fully feel like home. One of the things that we see throughout 1 Peter that we're going to see actually as we dive through and spend about 12 weeks in this letter starting in January is that Peter takes two words often that, are, that don't normally go together and he jams them together to create a tension in us of how we are to view ourselves. He says in, in chapter 1 verse 1, he addresses this letter to the elect exiles or the chosen exiles. Here we are called beloved exiles or beloved sojourners. So here's the thing, beloved, chosen those are words of endearment. Those are words of, of privilege in many ways. Exiles, sojourners, those are those on the fringes of society. Those are those who are most vulnerable. Those are those who maybe aren't there because of their choice. And he jams them together and he says, you're chosen and you're living as exiles. You are beloved and you are exiles and sojourners, meaning God's heart for you is clear, but you're not home. If we forget where our real home is, it will give us the wrong posture today towards others. See, as Christians, we are not to triumph over people with power, but faithfully serve, recognizing where our real home and our real allegiance is. And because of that, we don't have to have a perfect nation or a perfect home here, because we already have one and it will come. This doesn't cause us to simply withdraw, nor does it cause us to try to take over but to make peace with being exiles and sojourners here and in the here and now because one day we're going home. It also helps us to understand who this battle that we, that we find ourselves in is against. It's not against non-Christians, but instead against the passions of the flesh that wage war within us and against a hostile world that we find ourselves in. There's an internal dimension to the fight and an external dimension, a vertical dimension between us and God and a horizontal dimension between us and other people. We, we are at war with our conflicting desires. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But then in verse 12, there's also a hostile world that we live in horizontally or externally that is opposed to God and his people. And so internally, we're to abstain from the, our sinful passions and desires, to wage war against them for the sake of our soul. But externally, we are called to, not to war, but to godliness and witness. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, as evildoers, you may see their, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, guys, as royal priests, as a new nation, as a holy people and a new race, we are to reflect our king. We serve as declarers and displayers and delighters of this new and marvelous kingdom. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Church, that is who you are. And it's in God's kingdom that you find your home. And so we embrace the subversive tension that exists in our lives. We, we become the best citizens because our allegiance is to the king. So how do we live like that in an imperfect, unjust world? Well, that's the second half of chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, and how we are to submit to even ungodly authority. But we'll wait on that until next semester. 
We, like the exiles of Israel in the Old Testament, can build homes and settle down. We can plant gardens and eat what they produce. We can give our sons and daughters in marriage knowing deep down that we don't actually have to get it all here because our true home is waiting for us, inviting us, calling to us. And so today we live as hopeful exiles, joy-filled sojourners, a new nation whose home is elsewhere. But now we serve this world as his temple, his people, and his priests. Church, that's who you are. So two questions that pop into my mind. One, how do I know if I'm part of the people of God? I would simply point you back to the first part of this chapter and ask you the question, what do you think about Jesus? The cornerstone. Because really, when it's all boiled away, how do I know if I'm part of the temple, if I'm part of the people of God, if I'm a royal priesthood and a chosen nation? It's, what do you think about the, the stone? Is it the cornerstone on which you'll build your life upon, or is it a stone that is rejected that you stumble over? Because that's really the only two responses to Jesus, the living stone. And verse 6 invites us, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the defining mark of the people of God is no longer ethnicity, but Jesus and what you believe about him. So do you stumble over him, or do you see in him your only hope? your Savior, your Lord. You're free to choose. Second, for those who already know him, on a scale of one to ten, how well does your life reflect his priorities and the future kingdom that is to come? Not just individually, but for us as a church, how are we living not just as individual ambassadors, but perhaps as an embassy of the future kingdom in the here and now? I get it, the church is imperfect, she has flaws, and I could probably tell you the flaws of this particular church better than you know now. And yet, when we embrace who we are, there's a beauty and a compelling reality that I want to invite you to. You're not going to get it perfect, we're not going to get it perfect, but maybe we can live it out in an authentic way. See, what I've found is that my non-Christian friends need to not just hear from me and observe my life, but they actually get to, they need to get to know you. Because I don't have all the gifts, and you don't either, but we're not called to do it alone. We get to link arms with one another and show people something of the future kingdom in the here and now, something even clearer about who Jesus is and what he has done in the here and now. And I want to invite you to do that. Let's lean into the people of God and be together what we simply can't be by ourselves. It's how we're created to live. Church, we must remember who we are. We must remember where our home is. We are more than we have become. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us, but also invites us. Would you glorify Jesus, the cornerstone on which all of this is built? Would you take the beauty and the truth of what he has done and apply it to each of our hearts that we might marvel and worship and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Help us to do that well, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.